Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, who knew what and when did they know it? We're going to do our weekly political roundup with a focus on the CSIS report on China's targeting MPs. Richard Brennan, former Toronto Star journalist, will join us to talk about that. The Liberal government's controversial online streaming act has become law after years of debate. Is this really the best way to regulate the internet? And the Ontario Landlord and Tenant Board is fundamentally failing Ontarians, according to the Ombudsman. We'll go over that report with you as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, go to the nation's capital. It's uh, going to be a busy weekend in Ottawa, too. The uh, federal liberals are having a convention that got out of the way last night. Uh, and it's really, you know, let's face it, it's kind of, I guess, rally the troops around uh, the prime minister. But the elements of, of what's going on there are still going to overshadow uh, the weekend convention, including, of course, the foreign interference problems that seem to be ongoing and seem to be magnifying almost on a daily basis now. Uh, yesterday, we told you that uh, Michael Chong, of course, the conservative MP who was uh, apparently targeted by uh, Chinese officials uh, because of some of his comments. Well, with the uh, story we had yesterday, and this was an ongoing process here, was that the prime minister said he never saw that and, and that the security services uh, didn't even pass that on to them. Well, we found out yesterday that wasn't necessarily true. Michael Chong says the prime minister's national security advisor told him that she had that report. And then question period yesterday, he wanted to know just what the government's doing about it. CSIS has been advising the government, the departments, the Privy Council Office, the National Security Advisor, deputy ministers, that foreign diplomats in Canada are presenting a threat to Canadian MPs in this House of Commons. So uh, this is where we're going to begin and uh, talk about what's going to be happening in federal uh, politics and some provincial stuff going on here, too. To do that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Richard Brennan, a former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back with us uh, on a very busy Friday. You've been following this story for the longest time, uh, ever since we're getting little tidbits of information uh, from the Prime Minister's office and certainly from Mr. Chong and from others. What's your read on what you've seen over the last week or so? I think, Bill, like a lot of other people, I'm confused. Who knew what when? Uh, I just think, you know, it, it kind of, it's hard to believe that the prime minister didn't know, but there, I mean, there's a possibility he didn't know, wasn't told about it. But the fa- fact that CSIS didn't uh, relay the importance of what was happening, what the Chinese government was trying to do to Michael Chong is what leaves me scratching my head. I mean, they, when they first contacted him, they basically said, ah, it's no big deal, but I'll tell you about it. Here you go. This is what is what's happening. Well, it was a big deal. And Michael Chong, you've got to remember, he's not the kind of guy to cry wolf by any means. And I've met the guy and, and uh, you know, and covered him. He's, he's a regular guy, and he's not one of these, you know, uh, guys that get up on his feet every day and yells and screams about this and that. So when he brings something to the attention of the government like this, I think they should listen because it is an important issue that the government of China is trying to influence our MPs and our elections. And and I know these issues are, are obviously intertwined, you know, what's going on with the foreign interference. Uh, but when there is a threat or a perceived threat or an implied threat uh, to a Canadian citizen, let alone a member of parliament, uh, isn't it, you know, the... Would it behoove the, the, the law enforcement agencies or the intelligence agents in this case to at least inform that individual? Well, you would think so. Uh, it, it really, <laughs> I just find it completely confusing why they wouldn't. Well, first of all, if I was an MPP or MP, I should say, 
in in whatever party in Ottawa, I'd want to know whether my colleague across the way or sitting beside me was being harangued by a foreign government and why they wouldn't be, why the thesis wouldn't, you know, explicitly tell Mr. Chong or whoever it might be uh, under the thumb that what of what's happening is it, it just boggles the mind, quite frankly. Well, especially because of what Mr. Chong uh, revealed yesterday, because he said some conversations with some of those folks on the other side there, the CSIS people and the intelligence people. Uh, and he says the information he was told was that uh, that the intelligence agency actually said that the Chinese intelligence uh, officers were actually seeking information about an unnamed Canadian MP's relatives who may be located in the, the People's Republic of China for further sanctions. So, I mean, the fact is that, that you know, that, that tells you, I think, how severe and how realistic this could be. They, I mean, you know, let's face it, you've covered politics a long time and, and you know, People in the public eye, like this, MPs and, and prime ministers and premiers and everything. I mean, you know, they get they get threats every day. I get a you know, and, and a lot of them are frivolous. We know that. Uh, and we've talked to members, of course, of CSIS, and they say, you know, it's the ones who don't make threats that sometimes you have to worry about. But when they say that they're trying to seek information about Michael Chong's relatives in China, uh, that tells you that there's something up here. I think. Oh, absolutely. I, I, Bill, quite frankly, I think we've been playing footsie with China for way too long, uh, not reacting quickly enough, not reacting reacting strongly enough when when they've been up to these kind of, uh, kind of things that are going on right now. I just think we have to, and I th- think the government finally is getting on its hind legs and saying, yes, we, we can't tolerate this any longer. Well, this should have happened a long time ago. What, what's happening to, to Michael Chong and others is completely unacceptable. And we have to let the uh, government of China know that we're not going to put up with it. And, you know, if they have to boot up, you know, a couple of diplomats out of the country, so be it. And I know that they've talked about that. And, and uh, Minister Mendocino mentioned that yesterday in uh, in some of his comments in the in question period. And they're concerned about, you know, ramifications of that. You know, will the, will the Chinese government, uh, you know, reciprocate? I, they probably will in some way, shape or form. And we went through that with the two Michaels, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, and but but does that is the fear of that that kind of reciprocation uh, going to stop them from doing anything about it? I mean, you know, they still have a duty, don't they? I mean, you look at use the contrary the complementary situation here in the United States a couple of weeks ago when they they found out that there were Chinese uh, nationals that were threatening American uh, Asian people. Uh, they booted the diplomats out of the country and they and they laid charges against the ones that were U.S. citizens. Uh, they were acting swiftly on that. Our our side over here, they just seem to say, "Well, we're monitoring." That's that's the always the big takeaway, isn't it? Well, we're monitoring the situation. Well, we've always been trying to be friendly. You know, Canada had, had at one point not a bad relationship with China, but it has certainly uh, deteriorated uh, over the past few years. I, I don't think this is this is a time to sit back and see what, what happens next. This is a time to take some immediate action and let China know that this, this is not going to be tolerated. I, I just don't know why we we are so reluctant to take a stand when it comes to china i i just don't get it well i gotta ask you what's this doing to the liberal brand you know they're meeting a, a kind of a convention policy thing uh it started last night of course up in ottawa 
but others are being dragged into this. I mean, you know, we, we talk about the prime minister's, you know, involvement. What did you know? When did you know it? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. His chief of staff has already uh, appeared before the committee that's investigating this. But there are other ministers. And I mentioned uh, Mendicino's involved in this. Uh, Melanie Jolie has been dragged into this now and so many others. Uh, there's a perception here that, you know, and I've been told by some folks I know that cover this stuff extensively, is that they're 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 not comfortable with the fact that they're basically having to stand in front of the cameras and in front of the microphones here, and and defend the prime minister time and time again, and and change their stories while they're doing it. Well, if you tell the truth the first time, then you don't have to change your story, do you? Yeah, that's right. And Mendicino, I think you know, I, you know, here was a rising star at one point, and I just think this guy's fumbled the ball every time he's touched it. So. Uh, I don't uh, put a lot of uh, credit on him to to deal with anything, quite frankly. He, the uh, Whether the Liberals will be tainted by this, I think this, Bill, I think this has been going on for a long time. And I know that, uh, you know, then, you know, Prime Minister Harper was trying to, you know, come to some kind of agreements or policy agreements and trade agreements and stuff like that with, with China. And uh, so every, you know, all uh, a number of Canadian governments have been trying to to draw some kind of connection with with China and relationship. And I just don't think it's paid off. And it's not paying off for sure right now when they're when they're trying these dirty tricks that they're up to right now. So whether whether the Liberals all get tainted, I think the Liberals got a lot on their plate right now. This may be one more thing, quite frankly. But uh, you know, the, given given the fact that they're having a, a cheerle, you know, the cheerleaders are going uh, full bore up in Ottawa now with this gathering of the, the liberals, it, it, they're 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 preparing themselves for the next fight, and I guess in two, 2025, if if this government lasts that long. So but, no, I, I don't really put a whole lot of stock in the fact that I think the liberals are this this particular in, you know incident is going to affect their brand, but, but that's a big, but there's a lot of stuff, you know, it's like throwing spaghetti against a wall. Something's going to stick sooner or later. And I think there's a, a number of things that the liberals have to atone for. Well, and, and just looking at the latest polling here, and they're still within two or three points of the conservatives. Uh, and, and again, that's with what they call the margin of error. So I, you don't know what that's going to happen. But when that election does come, let's assume that it is going to be in 2025, the, the way it's scheduled as it is now. Uh, it's it's going to be ugly because it's ugly right now. And we mentioned this earlier in the week on the show. Uh, the, the the battle between Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau uh, is not just political. I mean, you know, when there's a liberal and a conservative, uh, yeah, they butted heads from, you know, Lester Pearson and, and John Diefenbaker right on down the line here. But with these guys, it's personal. I mean, you know, the the the, the insults going back and forth and the innuendo back and forth is is very much about each individual's character, not just about their policies. And that's 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 messy politics. Bill, I don't think, and, I, and you know, this is just my feeling on it. I don't think Trudeau would have run again if it had been somebody else. But he, there's a personal dislike going on between these two men, as you pointed out. Uh, I, I got no, not very well, but uh, uh, Polyev when he was in Ottawa, and he's he can be uh, he can be a nasty sort, and, and you know, and so can the liberals. So this is a, a this is a personality conflict. Let's let's face it, and we'll we'll see how you know how it works out on the hustings. But I I, I don't think that 
I really don't believe that Polyev is going to be the uh, the guy that brings this, you know, elevates the conservative party into power. I I just don't get it, but we'll see. I, I th this election will be about personalities more than probably one we've had in a very long time. And when that comes up, I mean, you you don't know which way the public's going to go on this because you know their perception. Uh, of these individuals, I, I agree with you, is going to be very much uh, at the front of the line here. I mean, you know, I, it, notwithstanding the fact that they are polar opposites on so many different key policies, uh, whether it's China, whether it's the economy, whether it's, uh, you know, vaccination policies, I mean, go right down the list. And, and I know that the prime minister addressed that uh, that convention in Ottawa yesterday and, and touched on all of those things. You know, that, that Polyev was hanging around with the the convoy in Ottawa, uh, his cryptocurrency thing. I mean, those are all the things that are going to get dredged up time and time again. And and on the other side, of course, the, you know, the Trudeau government's given them more than enough ammunition on a number of things. I mean, you want to go all the way back to the Aga Khan vacation, uh, to the Wii thing, and, and right on down the line. Uh, it's it's going to get pretty messy right now. And you're right. I don't think people are going to pay much attention to the quote-unquote policies of the campaign promises. This is going to be very much, I think, a personality-driven election. Yeah, I, I, just to, you know, draw a parallel here, being getting elected to government is like like being named coach you're 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 hired to be fired so it's going to happen sooner or later with the, with the liberals whether it happens this time or the next time but you wear out your welcome that's what it is i mean it's it's if it isn't one thing it's another thing that the government is being called on the carpet for whether it did it right or wrong or whatever so it's it's just a matter of time before the liberals are shown the door, but we'll, we'll see. If but it but let me ask you something time. about that, though. Let me ask you, you've been covering provincial and federal politics for a long, long time. You've seen leaders come and go. You can probably count on one hand, if even that, uh, the number of politicians that can see the writing on the wall and step away. Uh, I don't know if it's ego, vanity or, or whatever, uh, you know, that, that says, no, I'm going to keep on going here. I'm just... I, and I understand, you know, you you got to give people credit for their their fortitude. You know, Winston Churchill's old line, you know, when you're going through hell, just keep going. That's the only way you're going to get out of it. But on the other hand, I can't think of too many well prime ministers or party leaders that just said, okay, it's it's time for me to go, and, and I'm going to hand over the reins. I mean, I mean, John Cretchen did that to a certain extent, but he he kind of left the house burning when he left there and handed it to Paul Martin and said, hey, you know, have good luck with this, buddy. But it doesn't often happen that way, does it? No, it doesn't. In this election, it's going to be, and I hate it when this, you know, I, I hate it, I should say, I dislike it. And I don't think it's good for any of us. It's going to be who you dislike more. Do you dislike Trudeau more than you do Polly Ever, vice versa? And that's not good politics. I mean, that this is should be about policy and, and you know, what's good for Canada instead of a personality race. And that's what it's going to boil down to. With with Polyev, he's going to come out. He's just going to be slinging the mud left, right, and center. And and we see the liberals are already. I mean, is that good for? Is that good for us? I I, I really question that, quite frankly. Yeah, I don't think it's good for the country, and I don't think it's it's good for our, you know the the people that are trying to get people engaged in politics. Once again, I think it's a big turnoff, frankly. Uh, we'll see what happens. And uh, as we say, uh, Hillary Clinton is going to be addressing that crowd uh, later on, too. And I'm sure that uh, Mr. Polyev and others will have something to say about that. Uh, have a great weekend, uh, Badger. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, Bill, good talking to you.
Take care. Richard Brandon, former journalist who covered uh, Par- Parliament Hill and Queens Park for so very many years. And uh, it's it's getting uh, kind of frustrating. I mean, you know, it, no matter what side of the political fence you're on, after a while, I, I think most people just get kind of tired of all the, the, the politics and the, and the back and forth and the political shots at each other. Uh, but that seems to be the rules of the game. That's the way they're playing it anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The new law requires digital platforms like Netflix, YouTube and TikTok to contribute and promote Canadian content. It also updates the Broadcasting Act to bring online streaming platforms under the regulatory authority of the CRTC. The bill sets steep penalties for digital platforms that don't make Canadian content available to their users in Canada. The government says the bill will not apply to individuals who post on social media. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. Uh, this is the Bill Kelly Show, by the way. Glad you're with us here on 980 CFPL London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, the report from Emily Jovesky just outlined uh, the piece of legislation that was actually kicked back and forth between Parliament and then the Senate and then back to Parliament again. There's some, some revisions and rewrites about this whole thing. And it did pass, as Emily mentioned in her report. Uh, but there's more to come on this. Uh, there's another bill that's uh, that's still uh, being debated and perhaps even further legislation as, uh, well, the way the government explains this is they want to put guardrails up uh, and try to make it fair. And, and I don't know whether or not they're attaining that goal or not. Uh, there's a fascinating uh, piece, though, in the Globe and Mail the other day that I think kind of lays over the out for us so, so we can make up our own minds about that. The author of the piece is uh, Justin Ling, who's a freelance investigative journalist uh, who's written for the Globe and Mail, The Guardian, and Vice. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about uh, that particular article, but at the same time, uh, some overviews as to what's going on and, and the implications it's going to have. Justin, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Hey, good morning, Bill. Now, the the one that we just talked about here, the one that uh, that uh, the the bill rather uh, that uh, was just covered in that report, there basically is is something. It's, it sounds like deja vu to a lot of us that have been broadcasting for a long time because they tried to do this with the uh, radio stations and, and TV a little while ago. Not not this government, but a previous government back in the seventies, and basically saying we need to promote Canadian culture. So you have to play so much Canadian music, you have to produce so much Canadian content on television, etc. It seems as if, in, in the spirit of that legislation, they're trying to do the same thing to the internet now. That, yeah, that, that's about right. I mean, they're even using the same regulatory body, the Canada, the CRTC, to to kind of enable and enforce some of those content requirements, um, while also kind of looking to some newer technologies, uh, basically requiring that online streaming platforms, uh, YouTube, Netflix, so on, Spotify, uh, have to recommend a certain amount of music to Canadian users, a certain amount of Canadian music. Um, and you know, the, 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 the thrust behind this bill is pretty laudable, right? You know, I think yeah. even if we have some issues with how the government over the last, you know, half century has regulated Canadian content on the airwaves, we can kind of agree that it, it was probably a good thing in the long run for Canadian culture, Canadian news programming, and so on. The problem that a lot of people are having here is with the way in which it's being done. It really sort of superimposes that old regulatory system 
onto the internet. And they are two very, very different things, right? Um, you know, you only have 24 hours of TV or radio programming you can do a day on a certain platform, right? So the government coming in and saying, you know, 20% or so has to be Canadian is something that is kind of measurable, doable, and foreseeable. What we're talking about on the internet is, you know, basically an, a near infinite amount of content that is being uh, sorted through, recommended, uh, treated, offered by these platforms and the government sort of wants to come in and and, and tell them that they have to take that kind of infinite library of content and sort of contort it into something more Canadian. Uh, and frankly, I don't think it's going to work. I think it's going to end up with some unintended consequences. And I think it really risks creating a sort of particularly unique Canadian internet, which defeats the whole point of the internet, is that it's the World Wide Web, right? It is international. It is free of government manipulation for the most part. And I think this bill and some other bills they're putting forward uh, risks really confusing and undermining that. Well, exactly, as you pointed out in the piece in the Globe and Mail. And and the the one stark difference that I've noticed, I was around back in those days when they were doing that on, on radio and television, is the CRTC controls those those broadcasting outlets anywhere. They're the ones that grant licenses to, to places like yeah. this or, or to television stations. And so that's the hammer that they had. You play by our rules or you don't get the license. You can't broadcast anymore. And some stations did lose their license. This yeah. government or the CRTC or any other government, they can't control the Internet. It seems like that's what they're trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly it. And I mean, you know, giving the CRTC the power to sort of fine these bigger companies is a sort of tricky proposition. You know, there is already some contention about the degree to which these international or American or in some cases Bermuda based companies are actually sort of beholden to the countrywide regulators that claim to have authority on them. So you've seen the EU regulator slap massive fines on Twitter and Facebook uh, and other platforms, but usually for pretty good reasons, right? Breaching, um, you know, their citizens' privacy, um, hosting illegal content, uh, so on and so forth. Are we going to get into a world where Canada is fining YouTube for offering insufficiently Canadian offerings to its Canadian users? That to me seems like a real waste of state regulatory power. Uh, and it really risks sort of um, you, tilting the balance too much towards governments having that regulatory power across the internet and, and really risks uh, I think also creating a barrier to entry for smaller players, right? If you are an emerging streaming platform that crash that crosses the threshold that the government has set, where you become a big, basically regulated platform, um, you know, you might not even have the staff or the capacity to do the compliance necessary. So what this may end up doing is entrenching legacy players um, in a space where they really shouldn't be entrenched, right? The internet is a place of creative destruction. Nobody talks about Yahoo email or Friendster anymore, right? Um, you, every five to 10 years, you tend to see a turnover in our kind of main platforms. We haven't seen that in quite some time. Uh, we're due for one, I think, frankly. And I think the more the government does to sort of entrench regulations that um, uh, partner with the existing companies, it really risks frustrating the new companies that could come up and, and frankly, offer a better product. 
the other one that you touched on in the piece is is uh, what, what, as commonly known now as the Online News Act, as Bill C eighteen, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I get the arguments, and and you know I, I'm not going to say I'm totally objective, and you know you know interest of disclosure, yeah, I work for a radio station and a and a broadcasting uh, company that's concerned about content that they produce being used on another platform, and then they sell that content and make money from it, uh, much to the chagrin of, of the maybe the of the broadcast institution uh, that created the product in the first place of the news or whatever the case might be. So that's that's one of the basic arguments on this whole thing. Uh, but the pushback from uh, from the platforms here uh, to say, we're not doing that. And and, uh, and you've overrated uh, the importance of this. It's, and it's very, very controversial. Yet the government seems to just have their head down and they're going to try to drive forward on this. If yeah. they do, and if Bill C-18 passes, uh, what are the implications? How do you see that? Yeah, I, I think there's a real danger here, right? Like, I, I'm someone who also believes in adequately funding journalism. I also believe that the platforms we have used to distribute that journalism in recent years, Facebook and Google in particular, uh, have been bad actors. I think they've been collecting huge sums of advertising dollars and giving pennies back to uh, to traditional news platforms. And it's led to a hollowing out of the funding that keeps our journalism alive. I agree with all of that. That is the government kind of stated uh, starting point for this bill, and I agree with the starting point. The problem is the way in which they've gone about it is probably going to lead us down a pretty dark path. Now, if the government comes forward to these these major platforms and says you have to go strike a deal with every major publisher who uses your platform and compensate them for how often your users are sharing or clicking or liking um, those news stories, um, well, you're creating some very perverse incentives here, aren't you? You know, in the same way, we we slap you know uh, fees and attacks on uh, on cigarettes and on CO two emissions. We want to discourage bad behavior. If we're slapping um, a cost onto sharing of news on these platforms, we're effectively discouraging that, and we're pushing those platforms to offer less news. Indeed, some of them have already said they're going to kill their news operation in Canada if this goes forward. Um, but it also, again, you know, creates this high higher barrier, you know, this higher burden um, on platforms. Um, Facebook and Google can afford it. The next social media company that comes up probably won't be able to. And it, it gets into some very weird spots. I mean, it's all well and good to go after Facebook and Google, but what about Mastodon and Blue Sky, this new one that comes around? What about um, places like Rumble, um, which is basically uh, refuses to cooperate with governments? What about Gab? All these other platforms that will either not abide by this or will be unable to. uh, And I think we're going to see functionally a lot less news getting shared online in Canada. Uh, And I think that's a real risk to our democracy. We should be encouraging more news, but figuring out how to fund it instead of tax and making it more expensive, the, the sharing of news online. Well, and you mentioned in the piece, too, that you run also the risk of, of driving some of those people over to some of those other sites. Uh, and, uh, mm. you know, where do you draw the line in that? It's it's a fascinating piece. I'll, again, remind our listeners, you can go to the Golden Bell webpage and, and read it. Uh, greatly researched, as always, and uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, Justin. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist, talking about uh, two very, very important pieces of legislation that uh, the federal government's dealing with right now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A long overdue report uh, from Ontario's ombudsman, uh, essentially saying that the uh, Ontario Landlord and Tenant Board is, to use his words, fundamentally failing 
the people who really need it most. Now, this is something that has been happening for quite some time right now. We've told you some of the stories of people that have been uh, waiting for a report like this and waiting for this board to kind of get its act together. Ombudsman Paul Dubé says that uh, when the pandemic hit, the already shaky foundation of the board toppled and, well, things got worse. It struggled to shift to virtual hearings and cope with a moratorium on evictions. The result was not just a litany of bureaucratic failures like adjudicator shortages, scheduling nightmares, and dysfunctional technology. What was most disturbing was how these delays affected real people. And we heard some of those stories over the last number of years. And, uh, well, we look for the government to respond and, and to try to fix the problem. And, and maybe, maybe uh, some of the recommendations from uh, Mr. Dubé will go along that way. We'll ask our next guest uh, if that's going to happen. Uh, she is uh, Kayla Andrade, who is the founder of Ontario Landlords Watch. Uh, Kayla, thank you so much. It's good to have you on the program today. Oh, hi. Thanks so much, Bill, for having me on. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your reaction and, and, and your uh, thoughts after uh, Mr. Dubé's report. Uh, definitely it's been wait. we were waiting for it for a very long time. Um, am I shocked of what he put in there? No. Um, I think it was very fair and he definitely, uh, was able to grasp, uh, the hardship that both landlords and tenants are facing. And now the next obstacle is about, can they implement it? And what other changes that are needed at the provincial level in order to make a significant impact on, on giving, uh, more access uh, to justice at the landlord and tenant board. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, you know, it, it's hard hitting to be sure. And there's 61 recommendations here. Uh, but Mr. Dubé, I think was, as you say, trying to be even handed about this uh, because the, I guess the initial response is to point to the government and say, you guys are messing up here. You're just not getting the job done. Uh, but one of the comments Mr. Dubé made, as you know, he says, he says, I, I'm not blaming the government. Uh, I'm blaming the system itself that is so precarious. Uh, but, but, and again, I, you know, that essentially means the government's got to get their act together and, and fix that system. Uh, but that hasn't been forthcoming for the longest time, has it? No, we've been crying from the rooftop for many, many years. And we were actually lucky enough that, you know, the ombudsman actually thought this was something worth investigating, which he's gotten to find out um, themselves on how bad this is. Um, and based on the report and and say, stating that based on the complaints received, 84% of those complaints are coming from landlords. We have to ask ourselves, what are those complaints? Not just for the simple fact that Ten landlords are being denied access to take over their unit for their own personal use. But you look at the landlord and tenant board stats that clearly state that the number one application is for non-payment of rent. So when we look at what our government is doing and putting six point five million dollars again at the landlord and tenant board uh, and, and hiring adjudicators at one hundred and ten thousand dollars a piece to deal with tenants who are just struggling to pay rent. And, and as you say, there's two sides to this. I mean, because we've had representatives from both sides over the last uh, little while talking about this. And it just it just seemed to me, Kayla, that just everybody was just frustrated because nothing was getting done. Uh, you know, the process says this is the board you have to go to to get these issues resolved. Uh, and good luck with that. Uh, we don't have enough adjudicators, by the way, so you may have to wait six, eight months in some situations like this. Uh, and if rent's not being paid, uh, that's, that's putting pressure on the landlord. It's certainly putting pressure on the tenant as well. Uh, it just looked like a bad situation that was just getting worse. 
Oh, of course. And you look at, you know, stockpiling the landlord and tenant board with adjudicators is one thing, but making sure that those adjudicators are trained in a, in a way that they are providing fairness to both parties. Because if you take part in any of these hearings, just to listen how adjudicators uh, decide to rule, it's definitely almost in favor of tenants at times, just because they know that landlords are, you know, that greedy little landlord. So, and we look at where they come from, their previous background from a social justice tribunal. Um, and they are known for, you know, putting from people from one tribunal to another. So we need to have more consistency and people with more common sense uh, to be able to listen to these type of hearings. But a lot of these hearings go on for a very long time. And with the, the protocol of providing evidence to the board seven days before your hearing, we really shouldn't be seeing hearings going as long as they are. Um, but again, this is this is a this is an iceberg, Bill. This is an iceberg where you look at we see the top half there's so much more underneath the bottom uh, that needs to be addressed. And we need to get the right people at the table with the people in, in power, um, such as the tribunals uh, watch, as well as the attorney general. And of course, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, they've neglected this, this issue for quite some time. And I'm very disappointed with Steve Clark. And again, with uh, the attorney general, um, Doug Downey. You touched on something I was going to bring up, so let's circle back and do that. Uh, characterizations, and, and and it seems to be at the, at the root of an awful lot of the problems and at the root of the controversy here is the characterization that, that all landlords are, are, are evil, they are just they're in it for the money, they don't care about the well-being of the tenants. Um, and, and that, which is not the case, certainly. And, and but on the other hand, there's also uh, the, you know the, the stereotype of, of the, the bad tenant that doesn't pay the rent, that lets the property run around and, and won't let the landlord in to do the necessary repairs and things like that. When these things fester to the point that they have, Kayla, how do you overcome those those preconceptions and try to get a fair hearing? We've been trying to change the way of, you know, the wording of bat or landlord or slumlord or tenant into resident for quite some time, just because this is a, an industry that needs to be respected and it needs to be respected as a business. So when you look at what our housing crisis is today, our homeless issue that we have across the country, we have to look at who is going to be the best person to provide these rental units to the market. And I don't believe um, from my personal experience that it's going to be the government. It's not going to be the taxpayers having to keep building, managing and maintaining and subsidizing government housing. We need small private landlords to contribute to providing more supply. But be because of the red tape, because of the restrictions, because of a, a landlord and tenant board not providing that fair approach to justice, it has now caused our investors definitely in Ontario to leave Ontario and get into other countries, as well as getting into more countries with more favorable uh, rules that make it fair to make it a business. And that's what people are, are looking at, that this is an investment and we shouldn't be making a uh, profit off of rentals. And it's not that, that's obviously the opposite. Like, I don't know why profit is such a bad name in this business. It's just more the concept that we need to be um, festering our relationships with private investors more instead of just developers. Um, and that we could really um, work together as a team to provide a solution to our housing crisis, but instead uh, our government's working against the landlords and which is working against the tenants, right? And deep down, the tenants are going to be the person who is going to be suffering based on these uh, different rules, regulations, and of course, a broken 
landlord and tenant board. I think it's the landlord and tenant board has collapsed. And I don't know if people can hold on um, for much longer waiting for these recommendations that the ombudsman had suggested to actually be implemented. Well, and let's let's get into the politics of that. Uh, we mentioned there are 61 recommendations. Uh, we're told uh, that the appropriate ministers have accepted all of the recommendations. That was the that was the line I saw from the the, the press release. Uh, accepting them, what uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're going to implement them? Does that mean that we're not going to fight back on this? Uh, does that mean thanks a lot? Let's put this over in the blue bin now and move on with our lives. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen next, do we? And is it going to really bring the fairness to both parties? I don't think so. I don't think that it's going like it's great that they want to say you're you're acknowledging the errors, you're acknowledging that the adjudicators need more training, that there is many, many different situations out there that need expedited orders and that it needs to be put into a triage. But why are we going to be just looking at loading up the landlord and tenant board? with more adjudicators, we have to look at it as a as a process, a procedure part where, okay, what are our main applications at the landlord and tenant board? How can we streamline those? And how can we do it in a way that's addressing that growing backlog that they can't seem to get a hold of? And any elected official that you speak to, and they talk to Doug Downey, and he'll say, oh, a year, it's going to take us a year to get to address this backlog. We've been hearing that over and over and over again. And each day that goes by, we're going to see more and more landlords leaving the industry, getting out of the business, and our tenants are going to be the ones who are going to be struggling to find that affordable housing unit, or they're going to be the ones who are unfortunately being a part of our tent encampments or in these sleeping shipping container pods that are now have become a form of housing uh, throughout Ontario. Yeah, that's a that's a, a trend I'm, I'm very troubled by to see that that sort of thing going on. But you see, I've known people in in this community and and frankly a number of communities that have done that they've looked at that and they said okay i'm, I'm going to get into the business i'm going to you know buy a property going to fix it up or going to rent it out and that's going to be my income a secondary income whatever the case may be and almost all of them over the last number of years kayla have just said i'm out of here that's it it's worth you know it's it's not worth the headache and the aggravation or the money that i've got to dump into this and they're not getting anything out of it because uh when they do run into conflicts like this like you say there's no sense in even applying to the board right now because you're not going to get a hearing uh and in the meantime you know your your costs keep going up i mean that there's there's an unfairness here on both sides Oh, of course. You've got to look at the concept of a renting uh, cap of 2.5% when a landlord who who is now renting out a condo, his condo fees can go up. Our property taxes, our insurance, um, the list goes on, the utilities, the utilities that you know tenants are using and that bill is increasing, but you can only raise the rent to 2.5%, which is obviously a part where it's a business, you need to run it. And when the landlords are seeing their their mortgage rates going uh, up and and our economy not doing the greatest and not knowing what's going to happen this is now resulting into those owners who own these single family homes to say i think it's time to leave to get to get out to save uh what we've what we've established or to the point where that their credit is at risk and they can't afford to take on any any uh tenants that are going to be potentially um, taking advantage of this broken system because it's been pretty publicized now that we have a broken system. So tenants are getting very educated um, and able to understand that, hey, I can just not pay my rent for 12 months and nothing's really going to happen to me. Uh, and that's why I became the ambassador to frontlobby.com so landlords can report tenants on paid rent and utilities without a judgment and without consent. But it can also help tenants build their credit 
as well by the landlords reporting it. So we start to look at different tools that are out there to save this industry until our elected officials and staff uh, get their act together and make sure that they can provide the landlord and tenant board a system that is not supposed to be so complicated like the courts. It's supposed to be very straightforward, but unfortunately, uh, they have denied the landlords and the tenants uh, justice uh, that they are rightfully entitled to, um, and they were just downright uh, denied simple fairness. I've got just a couple of seconds left here. I want you to comment about, uh, as, as I say, watching Mr. Dubé yesterday with the, these recommendations, uh, and he asserts that he says, look, at uh, these are significant reforms that he's recommending here, but he says uh, the system doesn't need to be blown up. It just needs to have some of these improvements, in other words, tweaked a little bit. Do you agree with that assessment? It needs to be overhauled. <laughs> it needs to we're, be completely We're talking major surgery overhauled. here. Oh yeah, it's 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 surgery. A couple of months of uh, rehabilitation. Like this is this is a part where we've been seeing this going downhill for quite some time, uh, and to the point where they have now hired uh, or they're trying to hire uh, more adjudicators. Which I can say that I've applied. I don't need to be working in the in in there, but I'm, I put my name in there, and I've done it four times now. And you never even get like that simple interview. So we start to look at, you know, how they're struggling just to hire uh, adjudicators. Then the next obstacle is to train these adjudicators. And then the other one is to oversee what these adjudicators are actually doing. But the whole system um, needs to be revamped and it should be revamped with the Attorney General, the Tribunals Ontario, as well as uh, the Minister of Housing and especially, especially landlords, tenants, property managers and real estate agents at this table to really reform uh, a better system that can provide that justice. Well, uh, we'll see when they say they accept the recommendations, just what that entails, I guess, uh, if there is going to be any uh, uh, any of these adjustments that are going to be adopted in future legislation. Uh, Kayla, keep doing what you're doing. It's it's great to have you on the program to talk about these things because this is a, an ongoing problem. Uh, I'm glad the ombudsman uh, is finally addressing this, but uh, where this report goes uh, from here on in, uh, is uh, is going to be the key here. And I'm sure we'll talk again more about this down the road. But thanks for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Kayla Andre, who is uh, the founder of Ontario Landlords Watch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.